Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. Welcome, welcome to Cup of Taboo. Come take a seat, relax, get a cup of tea or coffee, or as I like to do, something a little stronger. Personal recommendation red wine. My name is Tyler, and I will be taking you on this journey today. I was busy writing exams, which is why I had like a bit of a sabbatical. A bit of a two-week break, but I'm back, baby. I'm back, stronger than ever. No, not actually. I did. I'm pretty sure I did really bad, but that's completely besides the point. It's in the past now. It cannot be changed. It is a sunk cost. No, I actually don't think that's the right way of using it. You see, I don't think I did well. <laughs> anyway, I hope that you are doing fantastically. Now that we're halfway through spooky season, and I have done. Not even one spooky episode. It upsets me deeply. But anyway, while I was looking for people to cover and spooky things to do, I stumbled upon the man who I will be speaking about today. And when I say that, I mean, I literally, it was fully accidental. And let me tell you, oh, he is a real bad egg. His name is Earl Leonard Nelson. He murdered people. Which, I mean, that's why he's being spoken about right now. He uh, happens to have been one of the earlier serial killers. But anyway, I hope that you are ready for your weekly dose of dark, strange and terrible, served in your cup of taboo. Warning, the following episode contains graphic descriptions of violence, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. I, th- I just realized how nasally I am. How do I, how do I fix that? So, I hope that you are ready for a ride because this is most likely going to be two parts because he did kill over 20 people. So, and also, his life is a circus. When I tell you it's a circus, I mean, it is wild. And the way that he was caught, wild. All of this, wild. It takes place in the 20s. The roaring 20s. A hundred years ago, almost. I mean, not quite, but still almost. But anyway, like I said, this guy was a really, really bad egg. He was born as Earl Leonard Ferrell on the 12th of May, 1897 to Francis Nelson, his mother, and James Farrell, his father, in San Francisco, California. Earl did not have an easy or a good early childhood life. When he was just nine and a half months old, his young mother passed away from syphilis, and his father followed and passed away from syphilis seven months later. Essentially, Earl became an orphan in less than two years of being on this planet. After both of his parents had passed away, he went to go live with his maternal grandparents, Lars and Jenny Nelson. They had two other children, that being Willis and Lillian, who were 12 and 10 years old respectively. They were Earl's aunt and uncle, sort of brought up as his brother and sister, I guess? I don't know. Anyway, Jenny Nelson, the grandmother, she was incredibly religious and very strict. 
So she was said to have been fascinated with, like, the apocalyptic scripture in the book of Revelations, which is, like, really rough. If you've ever read the Bible, like, the Bible's got some intense stories and scenes and all that kind of shit. Like, it's wild. I digress. She noticed uh, from a young age that Earl was odd, to say the least. He would, like, go through periods of super high energy, then, like, suddenly he would slip into a type of melancholic depression for days. He had a strange thing where he would leave the house, like, looking presentable and nice and in like, one way, but then somehow he would return wearing completely different clothes, looking like he got them from a hobo, which he probably did. He also somehow managed to often lose his underwear throughout the day. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know how that, that happens. Maybe once, like once maybe he got a wedgie and that was it, but it happened often apparently. His eating habits were also incredibly strange. Uh, when I say that, I mean like, let's just go with peculiar. Every meal that he had, he would drench in olive oil and then he would slurp it up like an animal. I mean, that sounds disgusting. I, it also kind of sounds like there might be like a deficiency there. So anyone who knows things about the human body, let me know. Because, I mean, surely if, if you're literally drinking olive oil, your, your body is like, hey, I need this. Maybe his brain was like dehydrated or something. I don't know. Biologists? Neuroscientists? Anyone? <laughs> Maybe, maybe I'm just making things up in my head, but that would make sense to me. A person who is not a biologist in any way, shape or form. <laughs> so as a child, he also, he definitely had his issues. He was teased, which he wouldn't, he would like be, be okay with that. They teased him because of how weird he was. And he also apparently had really big hands. But then he went through moments of like self-loathing. Self-loathing. That is a difficult word to say. And, you know, like, just moments of being like, I am nothing. I will amount to nothing. Which is weird for a six-year-old. I'm just saying. I mean, when I was six, I was probably eating sand. <laughs> so by the age of seven, he was expelled from primary school due to bad behavior. Because he was, he was known to, like, suddenly break out into these fits of rage. And he would lash out violently, just randomly. Didn't matter with who, boys, girls, adults, children, it, he would just freak out and lash out. So he got expelled. He also then started stealing small items at this age. And by the age of 10, he was actually known as the town troublemaker. Uh, people would like tell their children to not go towards him. You know, you don't hang out with him. He's weird. So his grand started to get tired of this behavior. And she, like, she tried, she didn't know what to do. She tried resorting to physical punishment, however, as Earl grew up and became bigger, that, that didn't really work. She knew that he was also obsessed with scripture, obviously, because growing up with her, he would become obsessed with it, you know, generally that would happen. So then she would try to use that, like, against him, almost in reverse psychology way, and he would, she would try to use it to appeal to him to be better, but nothing really seemed to work. So she then started threatening to kick him out. So, at the age of 10, this is when Earl was trying to impress some of the older boys with his new bicycle that he got from his uncle. 
and as he raced across the train tracks, he was hit by a trolley on the back wheel, which threw him off the bike, and he landed headfirst on the ground. So he sustained a very serious head injury, and there was a gaping hole in the side of his head. He was actually unconscious for around six days, and somehow he woke up and the doctor was like, ah, look at that, just fine, he's good. He'll be okay soon. Uh, like, okay, he just had like a major head injury. It's red flags. So, anyway, Jenny, his granny, Jenny the granny, died in 1908, and Earl went to live with his aunt Lillian, who was, uh, uh, you know, about 10 years older than him. So by the age of 14, he had actually dropped out of school and was like performing a variety of jobs. However, he could not manage to keep a job for longer than a few weeks. His physical strength, as well as his polite personalities, would actually attract his employers to him. However, then his disturbance wouldn't stay hidden for long, and uh, then he would have to go. So at some jobs, he would just sort of like stare at the sky for hours. At others, he would just like sort of put his tools down, walk away, and just never return. Like, it was like, bye! <laughs> it was odd. He was, he was strange. Oddball. He also had a very peculiar fashion sense, uh, just like he did when he was a child. And nothing ever really made sense. And now that he was earning his own money, he could buy what he wanted to and dress how he wanted to and no one could stop him. Which made it worse. <laughs> so, you know, he was just an odd human. He also had this really weird way about him in that he would just randomly start walking on his hands and he would like pick up chairs with his teeth and then just stare unblinking at people so it was like yeah creepy obviously i'd be like what in the hell is wrong with him so the neighborhood would like the people in the neighborhood were like oh he's deranged and uh stay away from that guy so he'd eat you know in in this time of his life, he was still doing petty crime while working his odd jobs. He was also a lover of true crime and newspaper articles based on the crimes at the time. So he was also super into like paranormal stuff, pseudoscientific works. Like he may have dropped out of school, but he, he was very interested in this kind of stuff. He, he read a lot of books. So at 15, it was said that he had a furious sexual appetite that simple a wanking would not appease. He started to go and visit brothels, and then he would get some hanky-panky there. He also started drinking heavily at around, the, around this time. So he would often disappear from home for weeks at a time and then return. So Lillian was like, what? What is going on? But at this time, she had two children of her own to worry about. It happens that Earl was actually very good with him, which was weird because he wasn't good with anyone, but the kids he was really good with. He did, however, start suddenly having conversations with people in his head, and uh, that, that freaked Lillian out that the, this was happening in front of her children, and they were also a little bit, like, weirded out by their Uncle Earl. You know, everyone's got to have their, their one friend. What was that show called? My Cousin Earl? That was a good show. Anyway. So, as he grew up, he kept on doing the odd jobs and strange things, but he would, like, supplement his income by thieving uh, he would go to places that seemed to be abandoned, break in, and take things. And one day, while he was passing through Plumas County, Earl broke into a isolated 
an isolated cabin, but he was busted while leaving with some stuff. So he <laughs> got arrested, obviously, and just a few months after his 18th birthday, he was sent to San Quentin Prison to begin his two-year sentence for burglary. I'm pretty sure San Quentin's like one of the bad ones. Didn't Johnny Cash have a song about that? I don't know, but anyway, pretty sure it's one of the bad ones. So while he was in prison, like this is when the Great War happened. So while he was in prison, like all these prisoners just heard of like what was going on. They were becoming super patriotic. And he was also like, fuck yeah, America, America. And he was like, I'm going to enlist in the army when I leave, which happened to be like two years later. And it was pretty soon. So he did just that as he left prison, he enlisted in the U.S. Army under his birth name. Earl Leonard Farrell, and he was sent for training in California. So the new army life seemed to be a bit too much for him, because only six weeks after enlisting, he went AWOL, because one night he had to stand guard in the cold. Oh, shame. In his desertion, he decided to give the Mormon life a crack. So he went to Salt Lake City, and there he also lost interest in that, and he was like, you know what? Maybe the military was for me. I'ma go back. He then enlisted as a cook in the Navy. And he actually found himself back in San Francisco at their naval base. Surprise, surprise! He found his duties to be too oppressive. So after a few weeks, he disappeared again. The scar. Commitment issues to the max. Less than two months later, in July of 1917, he enlisted again. But this time, he enlisted as a private in the medical corps. And after six weeks, ba -ba 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 -ba, he deserted again. He claimed that he had a bothersome burning around the anus from his hemorrhoids. I mean, okay, that's dodgy. But anyway, you should get that checked out, dude. So you, you would think that he would he would stop. Or, or that, like, in every single time he deserted, like... When he got back, they would be like, hey, you deserted the last time. We're going to arrest you. I don't know what happened, but no. So he was uh, he was still there. But in 1918, oh, I wrote you 2018. Anyway, in 1918, he was back at the Navy. In the Navy. But this time, instead of deserting, he just refused to do any work. What he would do is he would spend his days reading the Bible and he would start spewing apocalyptic words to his army people, to his Navy friends. So they were like, uh, that's the weird guy. Don't go near him. But anyway, on the 24th of April, 1918, after complaining bitterly of headaches and he refused to leave his bed, he was actually taken to the hospital. So he spent three weeks of observation in the hospital psych like psychology ward um, and he was then committed to Napa State Mental Hospital where he arrived on the 21st of May 1918. He had just turned 21. Earl was examined by a Dr. J.B. Rogers who was assigned to overseeing his treatment over the next 13 months. Physically, he noted, there seemed to be nothing wrong with his patient besides the fact that one pupil was slightly larger than the other one. He also made a note about how perfect Earl's teeth were, which, I mean, weird flex, but okay. He learned that Earl had contracted syphilis and gonorrhea earlier on in his adolescence, 
and he also learned that Earl would masturbate a lot, sometimes a few times a day, between the ages of 13 and 18, but Earl claimed not anymore. The doctor did some mental tests to see if Earl was like all there, and appear it, like, it appeared that he was. He also did some intelligence tests, and he did pretty well in them. So at the end of the preliminary tests, the doctor concluded that Earl Leonard Farrell was, in quotes, non-violent, homicidal, or destructive, end quotes. Oh, how wrong he was! On the 13th of June, 1918, Earl somehow managed to escape the facility, but he was tracked down and returned on the 11th of July. Six weeks later, on August the 25th, he escaped again. This time, he was gone for over three months. When he was finally returned, he was given the nickname Houdini, because he was so good at getting out of things, like the, the magician Houdini, who happened to be very big at the time. So the next day after he was returned, he escaped again. And a few months later, he was found and returned. By the time of his final breakout in May 1919, the Navy, who had been paying for, for like this whole mental stint, they gave up. They like didn't even bother pursuing him. They wrote him off. They discharged him from service. And his doctor made one final, one final note in his file that said, Improved. Again, how very wrong he was. So he returned back to his aunt's house and he got a job as a janitor at St. Mary's Hospital. So now technically he was still a fugitive because he went AWOL in the beginning. So, I mean, you see, this is why I'm confused because I kept going back, but they never arrested him then. But anyway, I don't know. I don't know how this stuff works. So when he started his new job, he started it under the pseudonym, pseudonym, Evan Louis Fuller. Three names, red flags. I mean, I have three names. Oh, no. <laughs> so why not just John Smith? Anyway, very specific. So at work, he met a cleaning lady named Mary Teresa Martin, who took his interest almost immediately. She was uh, 58, but Earl was into it. So, you know, each to their own. Mary was said to have been very quiet and like mousy, but very sweet. She got nervous talking to people. Like she was very cute, interest, in, introverted. But around Earl, she was super comfortable. Also, he was only 22 at the time, so also young enough to be his like her grandson. So the details of their early relationship are sparse. However, they started as friends, and they soon became lovers. Many think it was Mary's maternal instincts kicking in because, you know, also badly needed that mother figure in his life. But often, like a lot of people also said that he was very nice to her and she just loved that attention, which she never got from anybody else. So just a few weeks after meeting, Earl suggested marriage and Mary agreed. However, Earl had to change to Catholic Catholicism. Catholicism. Help me. You know what? Was, he had to become Catholic, which he did. Like, he was like, oh, cool, another religion, I'm into that. So he did it. And on the 5th of August, 1919, the wedding bells chimed and they got married. Poor Mary did not know what she was getting herself into. <laughs> she did, however, quickly learn that his personal habits were very strange. Now, they lived in, they moved into, like, a really tiny little apartment because they couldn't afford much. And apparently it was, like, very small. So she, uh also said that his hygiene was non-existent. He hardly barked, and I mean, because they lived in this tiny apartment, she would often just smell him, which, 
again, turned her into more of a mother figure than a wifey figure because she would be like, hey, please will you bath? Hey, please bath. That's something like a mom should do, not not your wife. But anyway, one like as an example, they were said to go out to visit her family, so and he stank. So she was like, "Please, please, will you just go bath, babe? I'm begging you, just go bath, please. I'm just, I, I just need you to just, I need the stink to go." So <laughs> this tosser, like, was like, "Oh, okay." Went, got a glass of water, removed his shoes, poured the water on his feet, and he was like, "There you go." That was the extent of his bath. And she was like, what are you doing? And he was like, there you all that matters. And he put his shoes back on and left the house. <laughs> I would murder him. So his eating habits also really like embarrassed Mary. Because remember, he ate like an animal. And he carried on into, into adulthood eating like this. He would just slurp that olive oil. And on top of that, he was always dressed so weird. And he still would leave the house in one outfit and return in a much weirder worse off outfit like often still losing his underwear and he, he would like leave in a beautiful coat and come back in like <laughs> a, a a monotone pink suit or whatever you know it, those are the kind of examples that they gave which really bothered her and he also at one point took one of her favorite skirts cut it up and he fashioned himself like a pair of makeshift trousers and she said that, you know, she was a wife. She couldn't get mad at him. I mean, good for you, girl, because I would have stuck those pants right up his bum, huh? So, anyway, sometimes she even said that he would randomly jump out of bed at 3 a.m. and be like, I'm going to go look for a job, honey. And then he would go. <laughs> so she was like, oh, this is weird. But anyway, on top of that, he was also incredibly jealous, which is like the one thing that really freaked her out. Um, it almost got to the point of violence where she wasn't allowed to speak to anyone. He got jealous of her brother. She had a picture of one of her favorite stars or something and he tore that up and he was incredibly jealous. And that was, you know, that was quite scary for her. And she also complained about the fact that his sexual appetite was, um, wild. She said that she obliged most of the time, but on nights when she could not, or would not submit to his desires. He would just lie next to her and just have a quick little, you know, he would spank the monkey. You know, tickle the pickle. And like, this is the 20s, and she was a 50-something-year-old woman, and like, she was like, like a strong Catholic woman. She was like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Oh no, I must leave now. How rude. And uh, yeah, so divorce was out of the question for her, so... She she just stuck through it, huh? So one day while working for a landscape gardener, Earl managed to fall from the upper branches of a tree and he hit his head. So he was admitted to hospital for a concussion, but he fled the hospital two days later. I feel like this guy's got some some fleeing things. So anyway, after this accident, his behavior seemed to have become even more erratic. I know it seems impossible, but it did. He would now stare off at walls and often like his headaches got really bad and he would just stare and he responded to things that weren't there. And then if you asked, like, what are you staring at? He would he would respond with the faces. Don't you see them? And his religious obsession also became more intense at this time. 
Like he he was like becoming he would read on all the different kinds of isms, you know what I'm saying? Like all of them. He was just becoming like so super intense like about it. So not knowing what to do, Mary visited her priest to ask for advice. And the advice that he gave her <laughs> Do your best and bear with it. Oh, you've got to love it, motherfuckers. <laughs> Makes me angry. So Earl did one of his disappearing stunts on the 19th of May, 1921, where he actually showed up at a house in San Francisco. He claimed to be a plumber there to fix a pipe. And the oldest son of the house was like, oh, sure, come on in. Like, show me, like, go do your thing. He went straight to the basement and there he found a 12-year-old named Mary Summers. Uh, he attacked her, but she fought like a hellcat and scratched and kicked and screamed. And then when her brother came running in, he tried to rugby ta tackle like Earl, who managed to get away. But they managed to catch him later on, and he was arrested and taken to the city jail. And he was booked on an assault charge. Mary received a call from the jail, and it was only then. Now, this is like a couple of years later. It was only then that she had actually learned that Earl's real name was Earl and not Evan, as she was told when they met. So she went to his trial and said that he was not well in the head. The doctor agreed, and again he was placed back in Napa State Mental Hospital. Among some of the reasons that he was sent there was his lapses in memory and the seeing and hearing of all of the things. He was admitted two years after he had last escaped. They started a treatment of arsenic-based medication, which was an anti-syphilitic drug called Salverson. But, I mean, I'm no doctor, but isn't arsenic kind of... Really bad for you? I don't know. So, I mean, anyway. Obviously, Earl escaped a few times. He was captured each time because, you know, that's what happens in, the, in his life. It becomes the norm now. Um, and he remained in the hospital until March the 10th, 1925, with one final note in his file as discharged as improved. Wrong again, guys. Wrong again. Now, over the past 10 years of his life, he spent a majority of that time either in prison or in the hospital. So I'm sure that this also, it, it led to some serious social issues. And I mean, I'm pretty sure that that also affected him in a way that we can't really, well, we'll never know because he's, he's dead now. But spoiler alert. So anyway, he returned to his wife. He begged her to take him back, which she did. I, I don't know why. Until one day in February 1926, he suddenly announced he was going to find a job. Mary didn't see him again until June, uh, and then less than two months later, he disappeared again. The doctors actually called this nomadic dementia. During this time, he did have a job, like, on and off as a handyman gardener for a man named Frank J. Arnold, who knew that Earl was touched with the cuckoo stick, but he worked hard, so he kept him. And uh, some days it was said that Earl would show up with his tools in one hand and the Bible in the other, and he would often, you know just stop working, put down his tools and stare up into the sky. And uh, one day he also shaved his head and took his hair to Mrs. Arnold as a pillow stuffing. I mean, it's, it's weird. So they, they, did, they eventually told him to leave, but little did they know that he had already started killing. So now I need to explain what happened over the next 16 months. So it's very hard to believe that so much happened over such a short period of time. And also that so much happened with Earl in only 28 years of being on the planet so far. His first confirmed murder victim 
was Clara Newman. She was around 60 years old, and she was said to have been a lady of means. She had managed to turn a small inheritance into a small fortune. So Clara owned property in several states, two of those properties being in San Francisco. She was quite a frail lady physically, but mentally she was sharp. She had her nephew Merton Newman, who he helped her around with her admin and all that jazz, and she lived at 2037 Pierce Street on the first floor. On the top floor, there were two apartments that she rented out. The first one was rented, and the other she had put up for rent. What she did is she, well, back in those days, what they did is they would put a for rent sign up in the window. On Saturday, the 20th of February, 1926, just before noon, the doorbell to Mrs. Newman's place rang. Clara answered the door, and Merton carried on reading his newspaper, you know. After 15 minutes, he felt a bit chilly, so he went downstairs to go and fix the radiator. He was downstairs for about another 15 minutes, and when he got back upstairs, he saw a strange man leaving the apartment. So he asked the man if he could help him with anything, and the man just responded that he was going to be taking the apartment upstairs. It would be great if he could let the landlady know. Later, Merton commented on how strangely this man was dressed, and he, he sort of seemed to be short but strong, and he just seemed a little bit off. So anyway, after a few hours, he realized that he had not actually seen his aunt for a while. So he started searching the house for a while, and eventually he got to the vacant apartment, which was locked. He kicked down the door, well, kicked the door open, should I say, and he was horrified with what he found inside. Inside, he found Clara Newman's body, curled on her left side, naked from the waist down. Her necklace had been scattered all over the floor. An autopsy was performed by Dr. Selby R. Strange, which is a great name, by the way, and her manner of death was determined to be strangulation. She had also been sexually assaulted after death. Now, remember, Earl had disappeared from home in February of 1926. Then he returned. Just keep that in mind. His next, next victim was Laura Beale. She was around 60 years old and married to a semi-retired real estate agent, Mr. Harvey Beale. Laura was active in the church and she was the leader of a women's Christian temperance union, whatever that is. Uh, Laura owned the building at 521 East Santa Clara Street in San Jose, which is kind of close to San Francisco. Her and her husband lived there and she rented some space to other people. Uh, all of the apartments that she had were taken except for one. So on Tuesday, the, the 2nd of March, 1926, Harvey said goodbye to Laura and went to work. He arrived back at home just before 6pm, and Laura was nowhere to be found. This didn't alarm him, though. He was he sort of just assumed that she was visiting a friend. So he made himself a sandwich and, you know, carried on with his life. He then sort of started to grow a little bit worried about her after an hour and she wasn't home yet. So he went around to all the tenants and he asked if they had seen his wife. None of them had, but one of the tenants did say that they noticed the door to Mrs. Beale's apartment had been open since about 4pm. Mr. Beale searched the whole neighborhood, he called all of her friends, and he still couldn't find her. At about 10pm, he checked with like the whole building again, like, you know, guys, please can you help me? He also went around looking, and eventually he got to the place that he didn't look earlier, which was the vacant apartment on the third floor. The door was locked, so he went and he got his key, and he opened the door where he then found his wife's dead body sprawled across the mattress. From the state of the room and the bruises on her face, there seems to have been a struggle. 
She had been strangled with the cord from her dressing gown. It was pulled so tightly that it had embedded itself into her flesh. Her garments had been hiked above her waist and it was later determined that she too had been raped post-mortem. So Clara Newman's nephew had seen the man and he had made a statement on his physical appearance. Um, an ice cream man near Laura Beale's place had seen someone that sort of matched that description leave the house at around 4.30pm. A specialist in abnormal psychology said that the killer was, in quotes, a maniac possessing extreme criminal cunning. And a man was arrested that Saturday afternoon. He was a 33-year-old Austrian immigrant named Joe Kessick. He was released after Merton Newman said that it was not him that he had seen in his aunt's house. You'll see that this becomes a very frustrating pattern in this case. So there was a short break between this victim and his next, but if you remember, he returned home and started working at the gardener handyman gig, like he had already returned home at this point. So victim number three was a 63-year-old lady named Lillian St. Mary. Lillian was separated from her husband and she lived with her adult son named James. They lived at 1073 Dolores Street in San Francisco. And to bring in extra income, she would also rent out the spare rooms in her large home. Every evening, what she would do is she would prepare dinner for her tenants, and every day at around 2pm, she would go to the shops, get the supplies, make the dinner, you know, it was like a routine for her. On Thursday, the 10th of June, 1926, she was just on her way out to go do the shopping when her doorbell rang. It was a man looking for a room to stay, to... It was a man looking for a room to stay. So she put her purse down and she was like, you're so lucky I was about to leave her. And anyway, she showed him the house. And no one really knows what happened, but she was murdered by this man in the spare room. One of the other tenants at her house found her body. What happened was he had returned home at around 5pm and he was surprised to see that she wasn't cooking like she normally was at that time. So he went up the stairs and he saw that the door to the spare vacant room was ajar. When he looked inside, he saw her body stretched out on the bed. Her glasses were still on her face, hair disheveled, and her dress was shoved above her waist. He called the police immediately, and it was later discovered that she, too, had been raped post-mortem. The detective on the case called the Bureau of Criminal Investigation for help at this point. Lillian St. Mary had finger marks on her throat, showing that she, too, had been strangled, as well as nine broken ribs which indicated that the killer had knelt on her while he was strangling her. Her glasses still being on indicated to the detectives that there was not really much of a struggle. They believed that she was probably taken by surprise. So it was around this time that the press started reporting about the Dark Strangler, a monster who would get into elderly ladies' homes that had rooms for rent and strangle and assault them. So there was obviously a panic amongst the people who lived in San Francisco Bay Area, and every detective was put on the case, which happened to be a whole of 10 detectives. I mean, I don't know how many detectives there are now in that area, but I feel like it's more than 10. Anyway, the 20s man. Another man named Otto Kruger was arrested at this point on suspicion of being the strangler. He was just sort of babbling though. But you know, arrest the man! Again, they had no proof it was him, so he was released. The next victim was 53-year-old Ollie Russell. She was married, and she lived at 425 Chapala Street, which was in Santa Barbara. So, now just for reference, for the people like me who have no idea where anything is in the United States of America, Santa Barbara 
is about 325 miles or 523 kilometers from San Francisco. So this trip would take about five hours to drive today. So also remember cars back then were much slower. There was trains, uh, you know. Anyway, I did do a map of the Strangler's movements. I calculated all the distances and the times it would take. So I'll put that up online somewhere so you have some sort of reference when this goes out. Anyway, Ollie Russell was a very cautious lady. Uh, especially since she heard of this dark strangler. What she did is she actually fixed all of her windows so they could not open more than six inches to prevent anyone from breaking inside because at this point they sort of assumed that somebody was breaking in. They didn't know. So she, what she would also do is she would remove all of her jewelry before she saw anyone. She didn't know. So, I mean, pretty much like how we have to live nowadays, but anyway. On the 24th of June, 1926, someone arrived at her door inquiring about the room she had available for rent. The fact that she let the stranger in goes to show how well he carried himself. For her to be calm enough around him to be like, oh sure, come in, let me show you. It's especially with her paranoia, you know. So what happened next is quite disturbing. One of her boarders, a fireman named William Franey, he worked night shift. Uh, what happened was he discovered the murder. He was asleep in his room, which happened to be adjoining to the room that was up for, for rent. So there was a common door between the two of them. And when he was sleeping, a commotion woke him up. So he thought maybe he was getting a new neighbor. And they were just sort of like bumping things around while they were moving in. But I mean, he was a curious sausage. And he peeked through the keyhole in the door where he saw a man with his pants down on top of a woman. So he didn't know who either one was, and he was like, oh, oh, scandal. But anyway, so he checked his watch, and he said that the time was around 3.32 p.m. So he obviously peeped back again, because human nature. And he saw the man pull away, pull up his pants, and leave. So he thought the lady lying there looked suspiciously like his landlady, Ollie Russell, but you know, he couldn't be certain. He couldn't really see. I mean, have you ever tried to look at anything through a door hole? It's very difficult. So then he thought maybe like, if it is her, maybe she's having an affair, but you know, he didn't want to meddle in anybody else's business. So he, he, he decided to, to not make any assumptions, but what he did do is he went around the porch, which was shared between the two rooms as well. And he peered through the window which had curtains that sort of obscured his view as well. But there, he could see that the lady was not moving and had not moved since he saw her through the, the, the keyhole. It also appeared that there was blood on the bed near her. So, I mean, to be fair, he did act a tad suspicious and, like, weird. So what he did is he started going towards her husband's place of work. Then he was like, no, actually, wait. Let me, let me check again. Turned around decided against it. He then went to the front of the house and rang the doorbell to see if she would answer. There was no answer. So he let himself back in and then he noticed that he had left her door open, which she never did. So he was like, oh, damn. So he rushed to her husband's place of work and he told him what he thought he saw. The husband was like, oh my goodness. So he also, like the two of them rushed back home and they had a look through the, through the window and they called the police. So what happened was they found that she had been strangled with a loop of cord that had been pulled so tightly that it tore the flesh of her throat. That's where the blood came from. As Mr. Franey witnessed, she too was sexually assaulted post-mortem. 
Both Mr. Franey and the husband were suspects for a while, but later both were released due to lack of evidence. Over the next week, there were a few people that were actually arrested, and all because being, the, you know, the cops back then were like, oh, you're homeless, you must be the strangler, or oh, you look funny, you speak with an accent, you must be the strangler. So then you know, everyone was arrested, and then everyone was released. And, um, yeah, so that happened. But also, just a fun fact, it was in this week, that year, that there was a pack of man-eating lions roaming around in Uganda. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, on the 11th of August, the day after my birthday, anyway, <laughs> on the 11th of August, a man named Philip H. Brown actually confessed to the strangler killings. After some intent intense questioning, though, they found out that he was actually a 28-year-old narcotics addict named Paul Cameron. Okay, Paul. Thanks for nothing. Moron. Our next victim is Mary Nisbet, who was in her early 50s. She lived at 525 27th Street in Oakland with her husband, Stephen. Again, I'm going to give you the distance. Oakland is around 320 miles or 515 kilometers from Santa Barbara. So again, this is about a five-hour drive or an eight-hour train trip today. Not really much was said about Mary in the source material, but one thing that was said was that her and her husband were truly in love. They were hashtag couple goals. Mary was the landlady at their apartments, and Stephen worked at a school as the custodian. On the 16th of August, 1926, at around 4.50pm, Stephen returned home from work and his wife was not there. However, there were ingredients for a stew, half prepped. You know, some carrots chopped up, so he was like, huh, weird. So, again, he assumed that she had just quickly gone to the shops to get something. But uh, then he found her purse in the bedroom, and he was like, oh, silly Mary. Left her purse at home, she'll be home quickly. Anyway, she didn't get home quickly, she was already home. Nearing 6pm, he started to get a bit more worried, and he asked the tenants if they perhaps knew where she was. This, the tenant suggested that maybe he should go to the grocer to see if maybe he had seen her, which he had not. At 7.30pm, he grew very worried. He did a quick check to make sure that she was not in the house somewhere, and then he went to the police. The police, in true police fashion, suggested that he should go home and wait for another hour, then, if she didn't return home, they would step in. Wow. Great job, guys. When he got home, he realized that there was one place that he didn't check, and that was the bathroom in the vacant apartment. So he went in and he checked that. To his horror, horror, he found Mary sprawled face down on the bathroom floor. She had been garroted with the kitchen towel, which had been pulled so tightly that it had frayed. Her face was slammed into the tiles as the killer knelt on her back. Her teeth were shattered, and her lower body was battered and bruised. She too was raped post-mortem. The cops immediately suspected her husband. Again, they didn't have any evidence, and everyone was like, no, these two are a couple goals. He would never do anything to her. So... After Mary came a lady named Beta Withers. She was a 32-year-old divorcee who lived with her son Charles Withers at 815 East Lincoln Street in Portland. Portland is around 635 miles or 1,021 kilometers from Oakland. 
This takes about 10 hours drive into day's cars. Back to Beta. She was apparently a very pretty and social lady who was often visiting friends or running errands. On Tuesday, the 19th of October, 1926, Charles arrived home from school at around 3.30pm, and he found that his mother was not there. By supper time, he called her friend... Friend... I'm doing air quotes. Mr. W.R. Frenzel. The two of them searched the house and could not find her. Charles spent the night alone at home, and the next day he got up early to go to the police station to report his mother missing. When he got home from school that day, his mother was still nowhere to be found. So he called Mr. Frenzel again, and Mr. Frenzel arrived there with a friend of his, and they did a more thorough search. So the friend went down, and Mr. Frenzel went up. And when Mr. Frenzel got into the attic, he found like, he found her big trunk where she had kept some of her clothing. You know, olden days. I mean, I wish I had a trunk. How cool would that be? Anyway. He opened the trunk and he saw her clothes were just sort of like haphazardly stuffed inside, which Beta would never do. She was very neat and she would never just shove. I would shove, she would not. I mean, my cupboard is just shoved. <laughs> so what he did is he started to remove some of the clothes and he was very shocked when he saw some legs. So he like emptied it and he found her stuffed in the trunk underneath all of her clothes. Her corpse was naked except for a thin cotton slip that she had on, and she lay in the fetal position inside the trunk. The police arrived and they did a search of the house, and the detective on the scene, Detective Tackerberry, who happens to also be a moron, came across a small little picture um, in the kitchen. Like, you know, you've got those cute little like motivational things, live, laugh, love. I suppose this was like that of the day. And it was basically like a little box with fairies coming out of it with a poem that went as follows. La la la, I hope you are ready. Build for yourself a strong box. Fashion each part with care. When it is as strong as your hand can make it, put all your troubles in there. Hide there all thought of your failures and each bitter cup that you quaff. Lock all your heartaches within it, then sit on the lid and laugh. Tell no one else its contents, never its secrets share. When you've dropped in your care and worry, keep them forever there. Hide them from sight so completely that the world will never dream half. Fasten the strong box securely, then sit on the lid and laugh. Thank you, thank you. Upon seeing this, the detective had a little brain fart and he decided that she must have stuffed herself inside that box and suffocated to death. So what he did is he had like, in his little genius moment, he ordered another policeman, so obviously they'd taken the body out, he ordered another policeman to get inside, pull the clothes over himself and then close the lid to see if he was able to do it by himself, which he was able to do with, with struggle, I must say. So Tackerberry considered himself very smart for solving this case so quickly, hey? Huh? His reasoning that she committed suicide by trunk was a diary that he had found that explained her love affair with Mr. Frenzel, mm -hmm, friends, who was a married man, and she was obviously very upset about this. So Mr. Frenzel and her ex-husbands were suspects uh, once they'd sort of, you know, some people were in on the suicide by trunk theory, others were like, no, she was definitely murdered. But yeah, Mr. Frenzel and her ex-husband were both suspects, both were released. The coroner actually did a thing where he said that, you know, when the human body 
dies, there is muscle contractions. So, you know, as as you die, your body will start to contract violently. And there would be no way that she would have stayed in that fetal position. So the coroner was like, listen, I think she was killed first and then shoved in the trunk. But anyway, that's just my, it's just my humble opinion, you know? They didn't really... <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. So in late October, another man was arrested in San Jose on suspicion that he was the strangler. So he was actually found to be a serial rapist, but uh, still bad. Very bad, but he was not the dark strangler that everyone was looking for. So only one day after the discovery of Beta with his body, Virginia Grant, a 59-year-old lady, was found in the basement of one of her properties at 604 22nd Street in Portland. This was on the 21st of October 1926. Her body was found behind the, the furnace and two of her diamond rings were missing from her fingers. But the police, in all their wisdom, they determined that she was an elderly woman and she must have died from natural causes, possibly a heart attack and then fallen behind the furnace, and her rings must have just simply vanished. Yeah, right. Cops. So victim number eight was a lady named Mabel Fluke. I love the names, man. I freaking love them. She was 37 years old. I mean, I can't imagine a 37-year-old with the name Mabel Fluke. Anyway, she was a 37-year-old widow. Mabel was the daughter of a prominent businessman, and her husband had sadly died from cancer. She was a small, very pretty lady, but her health was not great. With all the stress of her husband, her health sort of failed. She was, however, very headstrong. So she owned a house in Portland at 1521 East 21st Street that her and her husband had bought together, but she moved back to her parents' estate and stayed in a bungalow there. What she did is she enrolled in business school and she decided to do stenography. And at the same time, she would rent out her house in Portland. You know, woman on the move. Boss bitch. Boss babe. So she had put out an ad in the newspaper that she would be holding viewings in the house on Wednesday, the 20th of October from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Early on Wednesday morning, she went to the house and she saw a few prospective tenants um, she was seen at 1pm showing a couple the house, then two hours later a family arrived, but there was no answer at the door. So by Thursday, she still hadn't arrived back at her parents' house. They weren't really worried though, because she thought of maybe going to the countryside afterwards, but then by Saturday, her family grew very worried, and her father, along with a police officer, went to the house. They obviously had keys, and they opened the door, and they found her body in the attic, stretched out on her back. One shoe on, one shoe off. She had died of strangulation. Her silk scarf had been tied so tightly around her neck and then knotted twice. So judging by the smell, um, they assumed that she had been dead for a few days. Her diamond rings and her overcoat were missing. The deputy coroner made the wise remark that she could have done this to herself in an act of suicide. She could have pulled her scarf tightly and knotted it there herself. I don't know why, but it feels like the people were obsessed with suicide at the time. So the, the three previous victims, none of them had been raped. That they could tell. Obviously the methods that they used back then weren't great, but as far as they can tell, there was no sexual assault. Um, 
uh, for the previous three victims. But this is also when the police dedicated every available detective to all the cases. Strange fun fact, which sort of pertains to the case, because, I mean, it's just like a strange... Ooh. On the 31st of October, Halloween, the famous Houdini passed away. I remember what uh, Earl was called in, in the hospital. Houdini. Anyway, back to San Francisco. So, we were in Portland, he went back to San Francisco, and the next victim was Mrs. William Anna Edmonds. I also did see Wilhelmina in other sources, um, but I, I think that they also used to call the ladies Mrs. their husband's name, surname, I don't know, but anyway, it was a long time ago, I wasn't around. So, she was around 56 years old. She occupied a two-story house at 3524 Fulton Street, and she was a widow. Basically, she had become housebound because she fell down the stairs and broke her shoulder blade, which sounds horrendous. I mean, ow. It's a big bone. So she wanted to sell the house because she thought that it was too large, and, I mean, she was all on her own. She just needed something small and easy to manage. Her grown son, Raoul, lived on his own, so, you know, it, it was time. On Thursday, the 18th of November, at around 6pm, Raoul arrived at her house to discuss birthday plans for the following day. It was her birthday, the next day. There was no response when he arrived, which was strange to him, because he knew that she should have been at home with her shoulder. You know, she didn't leave the house. So he walked around back, and he saw that the back door was open. Now, his mother was nervous at the best of times, but since her shoulder injury, she was even more nervous, which alarmed him because she never would have left the door open. So he called for her, and like he was like, Ma, hello. Then he like went inside, searched the house. There was no answer. Finally, like he got to a room that she called her radio room, which is so cute, where she would enjoy listening to the radio and reading the newspaper. I can't. I want a radio room. So the door to this room was locked, so he picked the lock with his pocket knife, and inside that's where he found his mother's body sprawled on the floor. Hair a mess, and her ankle-length skirt had been pulled up to her waist. The jewellery that she wore was missing, and her purse was stolen. So the police headed... So the police hesitated to attribute this to the dark strangler because besides the two bruises on her neck, there was no real sign of a struggle, and the body wasn't concealed in any way. However, they did determine that she had been assaulted after death. She was raped post-mortem. And a neighbor recalled that they had witnessed Mrs. Edmonds talking to a man at around 1.30 p.m. And they, what had happened was they actually went to go say, how's it? And Mrs. Edmonds was talking to this man. So she was like, oh, sorry, this guy's actually interested in buying the house. So they left. So yeah, this man came there on the, the pretense that he wanted to buy this house. On the 19th of November, one day after Mrs. Edmonds' attack, a pregnant 28-year-old named Mrs. H.C. Murray was attacked in her home at around 6 p.m. The difference is, she lived. What happened with her was that she had put the house up for sale a few months earlier, and while her husband was at work that day, a stranger showed up at her door, and you wanted to see the house so she was like okay i'll show you and she said that he was very nice and very approachable and he had really nice teeth 
but she also did get a bad vibe and she tried to stay at least six feet away from him at all times while showing them the house and she said that while they were going through the house he spoke a lot like he spoke about the building then he spoke about religion and he spoke about how his ex-wife was a flirt and how he just could not stand it and he also kept trying to draw her attention to the ceiling anyway to make her look up but like she wouldn't she was like ah uh-huh, cool, 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 cool. And then, you know, he was like just very, he kept trying to stall and be like, oh, what's that on the roof? And then she, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing because it's just ridiculous. So she would not be fooled because she had the vibes, bad vibes. And however, he finally, he managed to trick her. Like she let her guard down and he lunged at her trying to strangle, like trying to strangle her. But she fought back like a banshee, screaming, scratching, fighting him like, you will not. She scratched him in the face and she managed to get loose and she threw herself through the screen door onto the the back porch. At this point, he ran away because he was like, oh, that was a bit of a scene. Gotta go. Um, Thankfully, she was okay. So was the baby, from what I could tell, besides obviously the trauma. Um, but yes, so he got away and they attributed that attributed. They attributed, they'd said, okay, I know this actually sounds legit. This sounds like him. Cause when she gave a description of his appearance, it seemed very similar to that. What, um, the previous witnesses had said. So the, at this point, the police also realized that he seemed to be switching his MO a bit from renting rooms to wanting to buy a house, which, you know, you got to change with the times, I guess. I don't know. We now move on to Seattle, which is around 810 miles or 1,303 kilometers from San Francisco. This is a 13-hour drive or a one-day and five-hour train ride. His next victim was Florence Monks, a 48-year-old lady. She was often alone. However, her friends did describe her as somewhat vain. She... Yeah, she enjoyed the the finer things in life. She did unfortunately have a heart ailment, but that did not stop her from being fabulous. She would always wear her expensive jewelry, you know, sweeping, diamonds, shopping, pearls, and diamonds. You you get the point. She, she wouldn't let, you know, they would be like, somebody's going to rob you. And she was like, I don't care. No, they won't. They need to get past me first. Anyway. So she was twice widowed, which is how she managed to get her great fortune. She inherited money and real estate from both of her dead husbands. Her and her second husband had relocated from New York to Seattle five years earlier, and he passed on shortly after moving. So just to explain how rich this lady was, at the time she was rumored to be worth at least $500,000, which in today's money is around $7.7 million dollars. Or 115,454,547, no, that's wrong, (laughs) 115,444,547 rand. I felt like Jacob Zuma there. (laughs) That's a lot of money. She would often walk around with her expensive diamond strapped to the inside of her leg, and she had a fancy white gold brooch that she would pin to her underclothes. She was trying to sell the house at 723 12th Avenue North 
in Seattle. Um, and this is why she was there at the time. On the 22nd of November, she posted about it in the paper, stating that she would be doing viewings on Wednesday, the 25th of November. On the Tuesday before the 23rd, she arrived at, C at the Seattle house to prepare for the viewings. So she called a few friends to discuss upcoming plans, and a couple came, like, you know, to, to, just like making plans, like, yo, babe, the party's still happening, yes. A couple came around that afternoon to look at the place. At around 2.30pm, she called the caterer to make plans for a huge party in December. And after about 15 minutes on the phone with the caterer, she cut the call short and said that she had to go as there was someone at the door. At around 8pm that night, one of her friends arrived at the house to discuss the upcoming party. Nobody answered the door, so he tried calling for her, he walked around the house, eventually he gave up and he went home. At around 6pm the following day, the neighbours noticed some people outside Mrs. Monks' house, and they seemed frustrated. So, like, the neighbour went there to be like, hey, what's up, guys? And they said that they had made an appointment to view the house, but nobody was there. Like, how rude. So the neighbour happened to have a key, because Mrs. Monks was obviously trying to get rid of the house, and she couldn't always be there, so she asked if he could sometimes do, like, viewings for her, which he didn't mind. So he quickly ran across the road, fetched his key, ran back, and opened, it, like, the house for these people. They literally were in it for like two minutes. They realized it wasn't for them. Cut it. They cut their losses. They were like, nah, actually, this is not for us. So they, they left. So the neighbor was curious and he quickly went to the garage and he noticed that Mrs. Monk's car was actually there. So he was like, huh, well, this is not good. So he called another neighbor over and they did a quick check to see if they could find her. Uh, when it came to the basement or the cellar, I don't know what the difference is. Um, they, they couldn't find the light switch, so they sort of used like a, a lighter or a match to see. They couldn't see anything, and then they left. At around 8pm that night, so this is the night after she arrived there, the caretaker of her estate arrived after growing worried about her, and he had a key, so he let himself in. The house seemed to have been ransacked, which the neighbours didn't even notice. Unless they did it. I mean, I don't know. So what he did is he went down to the cellar, where he knew exactly where that pesky light switch was, and there he found her body. She had been shoved behind the furnace, so he quickly called the police who arrived and started to investigate. It was not immediately clear that she had died of strangulation. I mean, there were marks on her throat, but there was also a large contusion on her head, so they believed that she had been bludgeoned or died of shock. There was also no sexual assault in this case, so... Immediately they were like, okay, it must be somebody else. And also the motive for this one must have been robbery. So, yeah, that's what it is. Because, you know, she was rich. Somebody must have robbed her. The captain detective Charles Tennant, do us, idiot, actually went so far as to say in a press conference that if anyone was to blame in Mrs. Monks' death, it was the victim herself because of her vanity. Screw you, sir, is what I say. Screw you. Don't victim blame. Six days later, back in Portland, the Dark Strangler attacked again. For reference, Portland is around 174 miles or 280 kilometers from Seattle, so this would take around 2 hours 40 minutes to drive or 3.5 hours by train. This 11th victim was Blanche Myers, also such a nice name, a beautiful 48-year-old widow. Her husband had died from a heart attack four years prior. She stayed in an apartment at 449 10th Street in Portland. She rented the house from Alexander Muir, 
and she sublet two of the rooms. On Monday the 29th of November, Mr. Muir was having lunch with Blanche when somebody rang the doorbell. She excused herself from the table and she went to the door where she chatted for like a short while with the person and she returned back with some coins and told Mr. Muir that somebody had rented out the room. And they paid a week in advance. $3.50 for a week. Yes. This man had apparently come around the previous Saturday and looked at the place. And he now came back and he had decided this was right. But he had gone for a nap because he was, in quotes, dog tired. So Mr. Muir, at this point he needed to leave. It was around 1pm, so he had to go, he had to do some things. And it is assumed that within the hour after that, that she was called to the new tenant's room and there she was killed. Her youngest son, Lawrence, who still lives at home, notified the police of his missing mother after 12 hours of not hearing from her. Two police officers went around to the house and they found her body stuffed under the single bed in the room that was rented out the day before. It had been concealed with a low-hanging quilt, which is why her son couldn't see it from the door. She had been strangled to death with her tea apron, which had been wrapped around her neck five times and tied tightly. There were a few like items missing, but they weren't really of any value, and they were unable to tell if she had been sexually assaulted or not. So the police work has been pretty crappy until this point. I mean, remember the detective that climbed into the trunk, essentially getting rid of all the evidence. But with this case, they actually did what they were supposed to do. They closed off the scene, they took as many photographs and as much like evidence as they possibly could. And Chief Thatcher actually made a statement that he believed that the perpetrator was not taking things from these crime scenes for the sake of robbery. He believed that he was taking them as souvenirs, which back then was unheard of. Basically, today we know that this is common, that for serial killers to, to take a souvenir to relive the, car, the crime. Back then, no, no. Like a, the, the word serial killer wasn't even around yet. They didn't, I mean, this was like all just terrible information to them. Now, at this time, there were two elderly widows, Mrs. Edna Gaylord and her tenant, Mrs. Sophie Yates, who stayed at Third Street in Portland. Edna was the landlady. So they stated that they had stayed with the strangler in the days leading up to Blanche's attack. A man calling himself Adrian Harris showed up at around 10am on the 23rd of November, the day before Thanksgiving, and he seemed like the perfect gentleman. He took the room on the second floor, paying one week in advance. He then went to take a nap because he was, in quotes, dog-tired, then emerged later that evening, where he had a fat chat with the two ladies. They spoke about religion and weird things, and then he also like really went off about how his ex-wife was a cheater and a flirt and how much he could not stand that. He left the house to do some shopping, and he returned with two grocery bags full of food for Thanksgiving. He spent a whole $14 on this. Um, so the next day, on Thanksgiving, they had a lovely time cooking, eating, chatting, you know, giving thanks, and they just had a good time. Altogether, he stayed there for four and a half days. He would only leave to get the newspaper in the evenings, besides that day that he went to go get the food for Thanksgiving. At around 10 a.m. on Monday, November the 29th, which happened to be the day that Blanche was murdered, he declared that he was leaving. 
He left the two women with extravagant gifts, though. Several costly pieces of jewellery, which happened to belong to Florence monks. He did also try to sell a very specific white gold brooch at a few pawn shops, but nobody took it. So they actually got Florence Monks's friends and family in to look at the jewellery, and they were like, yes, that is hers. So, you know, they're now starting to connect the dots. At this time, the police were also able to connect the fingerprints that were found at the monk scene to the Maya scene, which was a pretty big deal. There was no disputing at all now that this was the same killer. Another big deal was the fact that everyone came in, that, that had come into contact with this monster commented on how approachable and how nice he was, just showing his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality, or psychopathy, I believe. Anyway, three weeks after the murder of Mrs. Myers, the Dark Strangler struck again, this time in Council Bluffs, which is in Iowa. To get to Council Bluffs, it is a trip to, a trip of 1,662 miles or 2,674 kilometers. This would take around 24 hours to drive. So it's far. So it's from the west coast, I believe, inland to like the center. It's like literally slap bag in the middle of America. So yeah, the next victim, Mrs. John Burrard. Like I said, I'm not sure how the naming worked, but that's what they called her in the books that I read. Um, and pretty much everywhere it was Mrs. John Burrard. I don't know what her first name was. She was 41 years old and she lived with her husband and their 19-year-old daughter at 351 Willow Avenue in Council Bluffs. She rented out the two spare bedrooms on the second floor of their house just to get some extra cash monies. One room was taken by a tenant named Robert Moore and at around 3.15pm on the 24th of December, Mr. Moore was on his way to work. He worked night shift when he saw Mrs. Burrard chatting to a man in the sitting room. She called him over and she introduced the man as Mr. Williams. But Robert was running late, so he shook his hand, like, ah, nice to meet you, gotta go, bye. But he didn't really, like, pay much attention at all. At around 4pm that day, her daughter arrived home from work and found the house empty. She wasn't concerned, though. Like, she knew that there was a big celebration the next day for Christmas. It was also Mrs. Burrard's birthday, which was on the 28th of December. So... They were having like a big combined jaw. She also assumed that her mom went to the shops because of it. Then Mr. Burrard, her husband, uh, Mrs. Burrard's husband, arrived home just after 5pm and he and his daughter went out to do some shopping together of their own. You know, probably last minute Christmas shopping, you know how it is. <laughs> oh, Flip, we need to get mom a present. Ah! So they arrived home and there was still no sign of Mrs. Burrard which made them worry. So then they started searching the house. He found her body in the basement, stuffed behind the furnace. She had been strangled with a man's shirt that they assumed was on the wash line. It seemed that she had put up a huge fight, though. The whole basement was a mess, and she was also battered and bruised, and she had the typical, like, defensive wounds. Clumps of her hair had been pulled out. The police did some digging, though, and they found that she had recently been discharged from a mental hospital for a nervous disorder. So, they speculated that she must have committed suicide. Uh, how? Anyway, some did not agree and immediately accused the husband, and then there were others that thought it could have been this Mr. Williams character that she had been seen talking to. One of Mrs. Burrard's neighbors, Mrs. Brown, who also had a for sale sign up, was approached about 30 minutes before 
the man was seen at the Barad house, by a man going by the name of Mr. Williams, who claimed to be an inspector of fireplaces, who wanted to get inside her house to see her fireplace. She, however, refused him access. I don't think she realized how lucky she was. She, she saved her own life there. Three days later in Kansas City, Iowa, which is around 200 miles or 321 kilometers from Council Bluffs, Bonnie Pace was killed. Bonnie was only around 23 years old. She stayed at 3920 Hammond Street, and she was married to a man named Raymond, and they had a six-year-old son named Victor. Victor, the little boy, was bedridden uh, due to having a tuber tuberculous spine, and on Monday, the 27th of December, Raymond returned home from work at around 2 p.m., and when he arrived home, Victor was calling out for him from his bed. And when he got to Victor's bed, he said that mom had fallen down the stairs. You know, he was like, dad, mom fell down the stairs. So Raymond rushed to the staircase and there was no sign of his wife there. So he went back to the kid and he's like, what do you mean? So then he started looking and when he went upstairs, he found her body in a bedroom. Her dress had been hiked up to her hips and she had marks on her throat. When the police interviewed Victor, he said that he had heard his mother let someone into the house. Then he heard what sounded like a struggle, a thump, and then like someone running away. So they said, like, did, did, did you recognize the voice? Do you know who it could have been? So he said, no, maybe it could have been the family friend, Robert McKinley, who, in quotes, often visited Mama while Papa was away at work. Close quotes. End quotes. So... She, she may have been having a bit of an affair there, but anyway. Both Robert and Raymond became suspects, but both of them had airtight alibis. Exactly 24 hours after the discovery of Bonnie Pace's body, at 2pm on Tuesday the 28th of December, a man named Marius Harpin returned home to 2330 Mercia Street in Kansas City, where he found his 28-year-old wife, Germania Harpin, and, trigger warning, their eight-month-old son, Robert Harpin, dead. Both were strangled to death. There was a cigarette butt found in the bathroom, but nobody in the Harpin household smoked, and they also knew from the interview with the ladies that lived with the strangler for a few days that he loved to smoke. So they were like, oh, this is a clue. It got them nowhere. But anyway, this unfortunately would not be his last child victim, but this was his last murder for the year of 1926. And this is where I'm going to leave this episode, because it has been a lot. It feels like this should have happened over many, many years, but 15 murders in around 11 months, the monster was nowhere near to getting caught. I mean, he kept moving around, and he was so erratic, and that obviously played in his favor. But this guy just killed him with no remorse, and I now need to go Google what the difference is between a cellar and a basement, because I know nothing. Anyway, oddballs, I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you come back for part two, which I will be recording tomorrow morning. I am done with exams, so now I can rededicate myself to this podcast. Onwards and upwards, we say. So please follow me on social media. Instagram is at cupoftaboo underscore podcast. Facebook is cupoftaboo. Email me on cupoftaboo at gmail.com with any suggestions. And yeah, that's it. Goodbye.